Welcome to episode 13 of the Digital Fabrication Experiment, a podcast about all things CNC. I'm Winston Moy, and I'm joined by my overloaded co-host, Eddie Kramer. We're hobby machinists, and we'd like to bring you into our conversations about life in the shop and topics in making. Eddie, it's been a while. How's it going? Really good. I've, uh, it's been a learning week for me. How about you? Um, trying to, to play catch up and, and get the Machine Shop of Horrors 3.0 operational, but it's been a real struggle. I've been doing some uh, work on the pocket and see, trying to finally move into five simultaneous five axis. Um, I think you and I kind of texted a little bit back and forth, uh, just playing playing around with flow, trying to get it to do some uh, geometry on the side of a part. So I'd say I'm like 50% there. It's really uh, clearance is the thing I keep running into, right? So the tool wants to uh, follow a radius you have to really pay attention to where the rest of the machine is going, right? When uh, it's rotating that around on the ball end mill. So, but it's a lot easier to keep track of now that they have the uh, the simulator out. Yeah. So the pocket and C simulator, I've been using that. So that was learning item number one this week was getting familiar with the simulator, the release version. I actually got to play around with it when it was pre-release, when it was beta. Definitely, the final release is really nice. It, like, basically has all the features I was looking for. The main thing for me with the simulator is uh, detecting machine collisions, which I can't really do in Fusion uh, in all scenarios. It, it'll find some, but it won't find uh, uh, the stuff that's going on with the linking moves or between reorientations or between ops. So, uh, yeah, it gives me a lot more confidence to run some of the stuff I'm doing. Uh, I just run it through the simulator for especially like the, the five axis stuff, the the flow stuff. That was the first sign I had that I was going to have a problem was when I ran it through the simulator. So anyway, yeah, that's kind of been trying to figure out how to kind of adjust flow to kind of keep it within certain bounds, um, using uh, sketches and containment geometry and stuff like that. And all the stuff I've seen on the forums and on uh, YouTube. I'm not super thrilled with just the way it's like, Pick a containment boundary, apply your your multi-axis toolpath, and hope for the best. It just it seems like I don't know. I, I kind of wish for a little more control there. Yeah, I think Fusion is still maturing when it comes to uh, simultaneous five-axis. You know, there's really uh, I'm trying to do this off the top of my head. I think there's three full five-axis toolpaths, right? There's uh, Contour, Flow, and Sorf. I don't know if I'm missing any. Oh, and Blend. I think it's Beta, which I have not tried. Yeah, yeah, that's the one uh, Saunders used way back in the day. They're probably the most recent tool paths that have been added to Fusion. Um, and I think they were pretty new to HSM too. I'm not real sure about that. Um, I think, you know, I'm hoping those are going to mature and that we'll have more more tool paths <laughs> showing up under that uh, multi-axis menu. Um, I, I know like some of the problems I have with it are really just my lack of familiarity with it. So I'm still learning how to really drive those tool paths and make them do what I want to do. I think I've talked a few times on earlier podcasts about taking on uh, third-party work kind of pushes me to learn. And this is like a real good example. This whole week's been uh, everything pretty much I've done on the machines has been in response to some commercial opportunities. And uh, it's pushing me to get better on my fixturing and kind of get more efficient with some of the tool paths. So it's been really good. I'm loving, uh, loving the challenge of what I'm doing here. It's been interesting. These jobs that you're getting, they're not like super crazy advanced. You're not like machining something that like you can't even figure out how to start. It's like you could probably do them as like three plus two or 
or there are ways around it. So you know it's possible in your head, um, but you're driven to just improve beyond what you know. So like those are the kind of projects that I like that like you feel comfortable taking on because you know it's possible, um, but there's still plenty of room within that project to just sort of improve your own skills. The parts aren't really all that complex. Um, what's driving the kind of experimentation with setups is efficiency, right? So, you know, if someone's paying for these, I really need to kind of make them as most, most efficiently as possible with, within the limitations of the machines I use here, which I don't necessarily take that approach when I'm kind of doing my own stuff. You know, I'll spend whatever time it takes to get a particular finish, <laughs> even if it's doing a really small step over and going for hours. Right. Um, but you know, if the customer doesn't require that and they really just want the geometry for the most part with a decent finish, um, that's kind of, there's opportunities to look for kind of more efficient setups, right? And um, especially, yeah, it's a lot of three plus two, uh, but there's some uh, wrap fourth and simultaneous fifth or five axis that would actually be faster. Um, so the main thing I'm really trying to avoid is having to flip apart and do a second setup on the stuff that's going on in the pocket and see it's been hard so far because everything has a feature like it either has a hole at both ends with the like kind of a taper <laughs> flaring out at both ends so yeah it's been hard to avoid uh, uh avoid it on some of the parts but um but like the other thing i've been posting on instagram uh part of this one of the orders it's it's a couple of pieces but one piece is a gear and uh delrin gear right so that's actually perfect for the other mill like doesn't really need it, it's still too to set up, so I'm gonna have to flip it over and mill some features on both sides, but it's a pretty small part and I can actually fit quite a few on the other mill um, and take advantage of that fast spindle on that machine to kind of just run through the Delrin really, really quickly. So that's, yeah, I'm experimenting with that, I'm trying to whip up a fixture that'll, that'll be accurate enough to uh, repeat these parts. Cause I have uh, potentially a hundred plus to make, maybe, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I have plenty of time to do, well, not plenty of time, but I've got a, you know, it's a reasonable time for the machines I have to actually, you know, it's feasible that, that, uh, that I could kind of get a steady state going on the other mill with this fixture, if I can get that going. When are you, uh, when are you looking at making the first delivery of parts? So, uh, should get all the tooling that I need. So I, I made a kind of a, not a complete part, but I tested some of the, I'd say the precision sensitive cam with the partial, you know, partially machine part last week. I, posted that on Instagram on the gear in particular. Um, but I need a, a little bit longer reach tooling to do the, like one of the goals is, um, I want to do the gear teeth and the center axle shaft all in one setup, right? I don't want to be flipping the part and then, you know, no matter how good I am on that and how good my fixture is, like con concentricity, it could still be an issue, right? So I try to do their critical features all in the same setup and then flip it over and just do some, you know, cosmetic chamfers, whatever I need to do on the, on the other side or some, you know, pockets, that kind of stuff. But stuff that, uh, is critical ideally, right. For me to be done in, in one setup. So, uh, the gear teeth, I didn't have a long enough small cutter to reach all the way to the bottom of the teeth. So that's on its way. So hopefully this week I'll, uh, making what I consider the, the first two sample parts to ship to the customer along with the, uh, the two aluminum parts that are part of the same assembly. Yeah. How small of a tool do you need and uh, how much reach? It's a 0.7 millimeter uh, two flute and it needs to go down. And I, now you're asking me, I'm trying to remember. Um, it's a 12X 
tool. <laughs> so 12 times the diameter. Yeah. And which is just a little bit longer than I need, but it's just the way it comes from Harvey. So yeah, I think, uh, I think they, I think they had an eight X and a 12 X if I remember correctly, eight was just a little too short. So, um, yeah, so I actually I have a tool that was pretty close to that diameter. I think it's it's just a little under one thirty second, right? So I I did the test part with a one thirty second and didn't reach down, so I did about half the profile um, looking across the side of the tooth. But it also the root was uh, a little narrower than the one thirty two could get into. So this new one should be able to fully machine out the right profile. Um, so I think what else I uh, oh yeah, so I've got a corner rounder coming in too. Cause that's, that's the other thing, you know, you look for tools that can do, uh, the geometry you want in one pass, right. <laughs> for efficiency, which normally I don't care about, but like, uh, instead of going at like a, a fillet with a ball and mill, I can do it in one, you know, basically, uh, one pass with the corner rounder. I've thought about that too. I think I, I threw one in on my wish list at some point, but, uh, a round over is, is a really nice thing to have especially with wood form tools and some of the finishing tools, right. That, that just basically work a little faster than I'm used to, right. Cause either a little bit larger geometry. Um, yeah. So this whole week's kind of been about efficiency, right. It's not, like I said, it's not something I normally focus on. Um, I'm trying to basically get these parts out, get the cycle time down, um, as short as possible with an acceptable, we'll still make an acceptable part so I can, you know, price competitively. So, yeah, I think what I'm learning is, you know, I I think my setup here is still best for prototyping, you know, small one to maybe 10 pieces, um, especially on the five axis machine. And then, uh, you know, I've got some capacity on the other machines to kind of do a little bit higher volume stuff. Uh, so that's, that's what I'm just trying to experiment with here. We'll see, uh, see how much work I can take on. So uh, do these jobs preclude you from doing uh, any sort of personal projects for the holidays? Uh, time wise, it might. Yeah. I think if I can get these pieces out, um, I think some of this work actually doesn't ramp up until next year other than, uh, first article and test parts, that kind of stuff. Um, you know, some of this is basically contingent upon acceptable, uh, proof parts. Right. So I may not even, you know, may, may turn out my machine doesn't make, make the parts the way they want. So, uh, yeah. in which case these guys are probably gonna have to pay several times more per part. Yeah. It's hard to say. Um, some of the stuff I think you could find something off the shelf pretty close at McMaster, but uh, it's as soon as you need something custom, right? That's where it kind of you either need enough volume to interest a full size job shop, or you're paying you know prototype prices, right, for probably higher volume than you really would really justify paying prototype prices. So I'm trying to find the happy ground in between, up to you know reasonable uh, reasonable production rates. Yeah, well, I mean, you're probably one of the few people in the country who would take on something like this in this uh, price range, at least. Are you starting to do uh, carbide 3d learning related machining yet, or I'm settling in. still trying to figure out life there. I'm going in about half the time. Uh, so two or three days out of the week, cause I can't really edit uh, or record dialogue there. Um, they're running the, the Haas or the brothers and like, you can hear those tool changes through the walls. You can feel them through the floor. I can't pull clean audio in in that building. So it's it's been fun. Um, Rob had me learn how to program a UR10. Uh, I don't know if I'm going to actually do anything with the robot, but he just he, he's trying to 
make me a well-rounded addition to the team. Um, right now I'm working in one of their, their small prototyping closets. So it's it's been primarily nomad stuff that I'm doing just because of space constraints. And at some point I would like to get my garage operational again. Just because like I've got so many more like woodworking type projects that I really want to sink my teeth into. But with, with everything going on right now, with sort of the garage I have now and flying back home from the holidays in, in like a week and a half, it's it's just tough to, to get operational in this time span. Plus like LA traffic, that, that's a whole nother topic, is a little demoralizing. Last week uh, coming home, it, it took me 35 minutes to get in uh, in the morning and it took me 70 minutes to come home and uh, just losing that amount of time is like soul crushing. Um, I was lucky that I had um, a good podcast playing. I don't know. There, there's just something about LA that I, I didn't consider the psychological effect it would have on me. I mean, I knew the traffic was legendary, but um, it's it's sort of cramping my ability to work. Like when I leave Carbide 3D, I want to get on the highway as quick as possible because I know traffic's going to get worse and worse. And therefore, I don't stop at like Home Depot. I don't pick up supplies. Um, I can't sort of uh, slowly chip away at larger infrastructure tasks in the garage. So like today was the first day I like actually went out. I bought like 22 by fours, two four by eight sheets of plywood cut down so I could like really start building out like a little tool clamp rack cart thing, a, a new mobile enclosure for the XL among other just small improvements. It's it's been a struggle getting up and running, just learning how to fit in at Carbide 3D, learning how to adjust the LA lifestyle, and just working around both of those constraints to build out the new shop. So I don't know, it's been challenging and it's been uh it's taken a little bit of adjusting to get used to. Yeah, I can imagine. Are you uh are you gonna end up with a Shape Oko setup at Carbide too or just the Nomad? Um, so they do have a stock three with an aluminum table that, um, the, the other folks in the shop don't use, um, whenever they get like customer support inquiries, they, they typically just like try it out on the Nomad or something. So that Shapeoko is unused and I can claim it. The problem is the prototyping closet I'm in is so small and cluttered that there's, uh, literally no space available unless I just push everything into a pile on the floor. Um, those guys are really hurting for space there. there there's an XL chassis there, um, but it's not operational. So if I wanted to use the Shape Oko in Torrance, I'd probably have to steal the one from the other room, uh, bring it to my little closet, and then push a bunch of stuff off a workbench and litter the floor. There their space constraints are pretty bad. They've got like old carcasses of old machines, like just strewn around like the corners and along the walls. It's, it's almost uh, like when you see it, you kind of think that's actually pretty close to what I expect. Cause like they iterate, like you've got like multiple generations of past nomads just hanging out there. Um, so it's, it, it seems fitting and appropriate that there's like that, that kind of stuff there but it makes it really difficult to work. Uh, it, it sort of reminds me of uh, Adam Savage's cave, just a lot less glamorous. Are they looking at a move sometime soon? Ed Ford made his move. Um, I know the, the Torrance guys are actively looking at moving 
out of this shop into a larger one. I don't know what the time frame is for that, but uh, it is, they're working on it. Yeah, with the home setup there, it's going to probably, like I said, take you a while to get everything uh, up and running where you can. I am hoping that I'll have my enclosure done by the end of next weekend. You'll have yours um, done before I have mine done. <laughs> still, <laughs> still working on my Shafoko enclosure. <laughs> or finding time to finish it, right? That's uh, It's like everything's... Especially uh, now that you're taking on all this prototyping work. Yeah, yeah. And so I'm, I'm glad I got the bandsaw, man. That's been busy the last couple of weeks. Um, that's saving me a lot of time. Yeah, stock preparation is pretty big on small machines because you got to make it fit. And the less material removal you can do, uh, the faster you'll be. So I have like a kind of a temporary fence that I'm using, but it's, I, I need to kind of, I'm thinking like maybe some sort of magnetic fence it needs to be secure enough, right? That I can adjust it. But once it's locked in, it kind of doesn't move because uh, right now I've got uh, just some clamps basically holding a straight edge, like a, a piece of wood basically acting as my... They, they don't get much better than that. You need better clamps, but like, most of the cheap fences that you can get, uh, especially for like resaw and stuff, they're they're not much better than that. Like I said, the saw itself works great. I just need a better way to guide the stock and get the thickness of cut that I want, especially on this. Uh, for these tail run gears, I'll be making those from 10 millimeter pucks coming off of uh, round stock. Uh, that was kind of like the most efficient uh, stock to start with for me. So I'll be uh, turning five foot bars into a bunch of uh, 10 millimeter <laughs> pucks <laughs> over the next few days. But uh, that's working pretty good so far. Like I got the, the test ones I got came out within like 0.25 millimeter of what I was shooting for coming off the bandsaw. So that was plenty enough, uh, plenty good enough to uh, adjust for in, you know, in my cam. I'll basically just face those uh, pucks off in the fixture and go from there. Yeah, that's that's 10th out. You could do that in basically one pass, so. Not bad. Yeah. Yeah. It's Delrin too. So <laughs> I think I, I can cut pretty comfortably like two to three millimeter depth of cut on the other mill. Um, Delrin, as long as I don't push it too hard, that's usually when I've lost depths on, uh, on the other mill, it's usually cause I'm pushing it in Delrin cause uh, aluminum I'm always just more careful with. I've never actually lost steps on aluminum, but the deeper depth of cuts with the, that I'm always tempted to try with Delrin will, uh, kind of, overwhelm the stepper sometimes but yeah anything a millimeter or so would be fine so how are you doing work holding for small rounds on the other mill the raw stock coming off the bandsaw will be od clamped with probably a mighty bite like there's one that mcmaster car sells uh, mighty bite pitbull that looks like it's going to fit it's really tight like you have to create that little pocket right in the fixture um, cause I'm trying to get 12 pieces of stock on the five and a half by four and a half inch, uh, table on the, on the other mill. So it's not a lot of room to work with. And these are, um, I'm trying to remember the diameter of the, of the pucks. They're not very big, right? So I think it's, uh, oh, one and a, one point one two five inch, uh, stock. I can fit 12 in my current design with just barely enough room for, uh, mighty bite on the six stations on the left. And then, uh, I'm trying to work on a internal clamping for the right-hand side for the op two. Cause basically on the left-hand side, I'll, I'll machine the center bore and then flip it over 
use that center bore to work hold on the right hand side so I can do some work on the outside of the stock. That's what I have in mind. I don't know if the, out, the ID clamping with the compressed O-ring is going to work yet. I need to keep it from rotating too. So that's uh, one, other one other mod I have to make to, the, to kind of use an indexing. Because the nice thing now, with that, when I get that new tool, I can do the gear teeth on op one and use that to index, or basically to lock the stock. When I put it in, flip it over, it'll kind of uh, keep it from rotating. Uh, cut out in the, the machine like a matching pocket yeah exactly receive that yeah i originally was working on like maybe a modification to the part to have a pin to index it but um now i'm thinking you know i got the gear teeth and <laughs> just use those so that's kind of yeah that's i'll be working on that uh this week i'm trying to probably a, a rev three on the fixture um and then i'm going to prototype it i'll do like uh op one station op two station just in isolation on a small piece of scrap aluminum here and then see uh, if the strategy will work before I go make the, the full-size fixture. I like that. Uh, it it sounds like your, your workflow is going to be pretty efficient. And I like the idea of not doing like all op ones on like one, one tray of parts. Yeah, like sort of a steady flow of parts instead of like coming in waves. Yeah, exactly. It'll be uh, six finished parts every cycle um, with the 12, 12 station fixture. Um, and I'm actually still, so the other alternative is really just uh, instead of doing it around stock, do it out of a plate. And, you know, my more traditional way of doing parts like that and just flipping it over, um, you know, do 12 top side ops and flip the whole plate over and do the other side. But I'll have to use some tabbing. Um, and that would basically be on the gear geometry. So I got to figure yeah, out. Yeah, that's, that's tricky. Yeah. So I haven't given up on that because that would actually probably be the most efficient as far as loading and unloading of the machine. Um, so, but I have some, that's, that's like on my, kind of when I get a little bit more time, I'm going to play around with that. Or I might just save that for, you know, if I actually get this work and then I'm starting looking for efficiency down the road to kind of um, just get better at it. <laughs> that might be my alternative to trim down the time how many tool changes do you have to go through for this part i have three right now and i might have to do a fourth uh, and i'm actually sticking with a smaller tool to avoid a tool change you know doing some pocketing with you know probably it'd go faster with a bigger tool so i gotta kind of look at if it makes sense to do the tool change um to get the bigger tool and remove material faster or just leave the same tool and use it for two ops in a row honestly even if you like look at the time estimate and it saves you like a minute or two per batch that just means that you have to sit at the machine longer like i don't know if this is something you can like walk away and come back like 45 minutes later or if you have to do a tool change you come back like in 20 minutes and then 25 minutes after that it's almost easier just to let it run if it means you can get some time away from the machine yeah that's exactly it like basically the bulk material removal if i use the same tool that's probably 90 or it's probably about 85 percent of the machining time is spent doing that and then the rest is finishing you know like the but that's where a whole bunch of tool changes come in right but they, and they run really quick so but that's fine because that's i'll be there you know if i have to be there at the last 10 minutes of the cycle and change the tool three times um to get through the finishing that's okay it's the ones that we're having to be there like every 10 minutes change the tool <laughs> right through the whole cycle yeah so uh that's that's the kind of stuff i'm working on around uh, just trying to figure out the most efficient, um, longest running 
combination of tools I can get. And getting 12 on there instead of nine helped too. So that, you know, kind of lets me amortize the tool change over a few more parts. And also, you know, I'm trying to keep commonality between the op one and op two parts. That's the other thing that kind of helps me out on uh, just letting this thing run un unattended for most of the cycle. I've been meaning to ask you, how's, how's it going with your, uh, you had a client you were working with on developing some, ca some, uh, cam strategies, right? I think they were looking at doing some manufacturing with your. Can't speak to the particulars of the part, but I handed off some G code. They ran it. It worked well for the most part, except for there's uh, one operation that requires an undercut. And on my machine, it came out just fine. But on the uh, remote side, um, it didn't come out so great. And trying to figure out whether, like, I have a lot of faith in the toolpath. Trying to figure out, like, did they just zero the tool wrong and it cut a little in the wrong place? Or is their machine a little loose? Is there backlash or something? Trying to figure that out and make the G-code, like, actually foolproof has been uh, something that's been on my mind a little more. Because um, it's, like, for you, like, once you come up with a toolpath and you're comfortable with it, that's it. That's that's the end of it. For me, I have to hand off a process that works without me, without my particularly calibrated machine, trusting that their machine is built well and that they are operating the tool and the, or the, the Shaboko well. So um, we've... They have a uh, someone else doing the modeling for the part, so there's a lot of like handoff and, and running files back and forth with a middleman. Um, so we've gone through like the first revision. They're working on a improved version of the part um, with with slightly tweaked geometry. So I'm gonna have to remake new G code for that. So I think uh, right now I'm sort of just this this first uh, like the first couple programs that I've sent them, whatever, that's a learning process. Uh, but when I generate the, the G code for the updated part, um, if they're still getting uh, errors in terms of that undercut, then I'm going to have to do probably a little bit of remote troubleshooting with them. So I don't know. It's It's been going all right, all things considered. Um, but just having to deal with someone else's machine and someone else operating the machine is just a variable that I, I would rather avoid in the future. So I don't know if I would take on, if, if I had another opportunity like this come up a year from now, I don't know if I would actually take it. Take what you could get from something like that as far as uh, experience. And, and sometimes it's, you know, the thing you learn is I don't like to do this kind of work any, anymore. <laughs> and it's especially true on like, a hobby machine so they have a shape oko if they had a nomad with a tool probe like that would change a lot of things because that's that's one less variable taken out the machine is i know it's good out of the box and i know that once they set zero the first time everything relative to that is going to be dead on perfect and so those two things right now are kind of what are i what i think are probably the sources of error here and so Working with a lower end machine, it's it's just a couple more variables that you have to play with that that can sort of increase the level of uh, anxiety. Yeah, it depends a little more on the operator, you know, right? Getting everything accurate and uh, 
set up and measured correctly, right? Uh, can't count on the machine to necessarily do it. Um, so speaking of uh, new things, I don't know uh, if you've ever used John Saunders uh, NYCC and C Ultimate Guide to, to uh, Thread Milling. Have you taken a look at that video and the supporting material that he put out? I think it was this year. I have I have looked at the video, but I haven't actually looked at his material or used any of his uh, formulas for calculating this stuff just because I haven't had another need to thread mill. But uh, at some point, I would like to revisit that. Well, I'm, I'm here to offer a big endorsement <laughs> because uh, you know, I've done <laughs> quite a bit of thread milling, um, but really... So three primary sizes, I, I tend to do 1032 because I use that a lot of my fixtures, uh, M6 and M4. And all those, uh, you know, took me a little tweaking to get them working, right? You know, that, you know basically I'm, I was almost always coming in too tight the first time I would cut a new thread geometry. Um, have to tweak the infusion, tweak the uh, pitch diameter offset or maybe the, the starting minor diameter hole or hole diameter to kind of get a good fit, not too tight, not too loose on the screw. And now I'm, you know, I've got uh, some go, no go gauges, at least for the 1032 recently had a need to try a new thread uh, that I haven't cut before 832. So I was expecting to have to go through this whole iterative process of, you know, starting with the numbers that are in the tables and then having to tweak it a little bit to kind of, you know, three or four or five, times before I get it right. And I said, you know, then I remembered his video. And I said, let me go look at what he put in that spreadsheet. And it makes so much sense. <laughs> like I kind of can see where the, where the error was coming from. Um, and I'm happy to say my 832, the very first hole I, uh, and I, I don't have the drill. So I just interpolated the hole and then thread milled it. And it was perfect. <laughs> I mean, perfect. Um, you know, I'm using my Home Depot bolt as my go, no go right now. Um, but I've got a I've got an eight thirty two go no go gauge on the way from uh, Lakeshore. But yeah, it was it was really good. And I I haven't posted on Instagram yet, but that's kind of part of what I was doing yesterday. Was uh, I think I ran eight different holes because the first like I said the first one worked. Then it was really just um, tweaking for the the tightness that I want. You know, I had control over just how tight how loose I wanted it. Um, but they were all good threads. So that was, that was nice. So now I feel like I have uh, confidence that I can, you know, basically cut any thread geometry the first time using the spreadsheet. Yeah. I think the main thing he did is he adjusted for, uh, something I wasn't aware of, which is the, I guess the geometry on most thread mills, uh, they kind of have a flat on the end and you have to, you have to adjust for that. And the, the pitch chamber offset probably, you know, this, this is one of those gaps that being a self-taught non-machinist. You probably run into that any machinist, anyone that lives in a machine shop would know exactly like to, to adjust for that. But, uh, but I, I never did. Yeah. You know, I always had to, had to find it by trial and error. So it's good. It was, uh, I'm gonna probably do some more tests, different thread diameters and see if, uh, how consistent I can be on that. You may have just got lucky the first time. Right. So, uh, yeah, I want to prove it, but I think that he's onto something with the spreadsheet. So I definitely recommend anyone's doing thread milling, uh, kind of start with the numbers that sheet generates for you they seem to be really good all right i'll uh bookmark that for later because i actually there's a project that i want to do um that's uh putting threads in wood so uh but that that's probably going to be a pretty large uh thread actually but just to have a formula that works um could be interesting 
are you designing your own thread or is this for, are you trying to fit a off the shelf part? Um, it would probably be easier if I just picked a thread, like a one inch or something. Um, I'm just trying to have like uh, wooden parts that actually interface through threads. Yeah, I think it's actually easier if you're if you're you know if you're making the the male and the female threads yourself, and you know it may not be conformant to standard, but it's a good chance it'll fit together. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's, like relative to like the parts made on the same machine, they'll be pretty good. Yeah, yeah. The, the trick is trying to you know take them uh, your your threads and a component from some third party source like McMaster Card and, and getting them to fit right. So that that's where you got to really pay attention. What else? I think, uh, yeah, so I did the Dell run test. I'll do some more of that. That's most of what I'll be posting this week. It'll be uh, kind of testing out some cam strategies on these parts that I'm uh, creating samples for. How about you? Do uh, you have any time to do any, uh, I guess, no, you don't have your machine set up yet, right? I forgot. Nope, I am, I am not operational. Although I will say I do have the Pocket NC back finally. Uh, it went back in for calibration. And they sent it back, so... I have it, but I don't have any place to work because all the flat surfaces right now in the garage are all occupied by boxes. Um, so it's it's going to be hopefully another week before I start seeing signs of life in the shop. And then shortly after that, I'm flying home for the holidays. So I'm not going to really be able to knock out anything on my own until early January. Are you um, planning on keeping the pocket and see inside the enclosure with the shape of like you had it at, the, at your old home probably so there's a lot of room right now under the enclosure um just because i think i'm going to keep my vacuum mobile and not stored underneath it especially since it's pretty quiet i don't need to put it in a box it can just be anywhere um and i'm going to want to wheel around that vacuum to like hook it up to like my my miter saw or something or my belt sander so it's got to be able to move around, and my uh, my new uh, California Air Tools compressor has a set of wheels on it, so I can wheel that around pretty easily. Um, so I could make a little mini enclosure underneath the Shapeoko, or because it's the XL and the, the uh, X-axis is wide enough, I can actually uh, fit the Pocket NC in there or the Nomad um, without too much uh, feeling too cramped, because... Um, if you try and fit like the Nomad of the Pocket NC on top of the stock three, the uh, the spindle and the XC uh, carriage plates um, sort of prevent you from pushing the machine right up against the uh, X-axis gantry. Um, so now I can actually have a little uh, wiggle room to just center the machine, make it look nice, and uh, keep all the electronics away from all the, the swarf that's generated. Um, so it might go in the enclosure. I might make it make it its own enclosure. But right now I'm thinking I'm going to take the lazy way out and just put it on top of the stock or the, the XL. Yeah. Yeah, I, I kind of like the idea of going vertical. I, I was exploring doing that here and still might, um, especially with, you know, I have the other mill is so light it can easily stack on top of uh, the Nomad if I make a little uh, kind of U-shaped table to stick it on you're giving uh the the term vertical machining center a uh, little new meaning like double stack washer dryer right um i mean i'm pretty happy with my setup here i've got a lot of space but i'd like to have uh 
maybe a little more like an assembly area, which that's what I don't have right now. So especially, or you know, enough space for a a Daytron, maybe. <laughs> yeah, so the, <laughs> the shape would have to go in the uh, in another room <laughs> if the Daytron's going inside. I don't know. Actually, if I ever had something like that, I think I that would end up in the garage probably. Um, yeah, just go ahead and bite the bullet and and uh, climate control one of the bays, get it insulated. And, because I'd end up having to have a compressor anyway for something like that. You know, a bigger industrial machine is going to need constant air and maybe RO, depending on what I go with. So I'd probably be in the garage no matter what. I'm okay with that now. <laughs> Took me a while to get there. I just, uh, but I think that would, you know, that would be my next big move and get a bigger machine and get a, a shop set up in the garage. I was telling my wife about that and she's like, oh, well, then what? then I can have your room. I'm like, no, <laughs> it's like, that's, all the little machines are still staying in here. Right? Um, it's so convenient having them kind of in my, you know, my workshop slash office. Cause I can just sit there. That's where my big computer is. Right. It's my main workstation. So, um, I love just having everything kind of, well, you were here, right? You saw it. It's kind of pretty convenient for prototyping. Yep. It is, is your little machining cave. Yeah. And if I end up with, you know, a more, I guess, more capable shop in the garage. It'll be uh, uh, just out there to run parts, right? I'm not going to sit there and do my designing out there. It's just even with AC, it'd probably be a little, a little too hot and humid and noisy in the in the garage. So I'm not giving up my uh, my man cave. <laughs> you got uh, any travel coming up in February? There's Workbench Con, so that's that's probably more maker oriented than machinist. And then in March, there is um, a jewelry convention that uh, Rio Grande will be at. They're one of our distributors for the Nomad. Um, so I might be flying to New York to to work that show. Oh, okay. That'd be great. I think uh, that would be an interesting to kind of see some of the mold making stuff. So hopefully you'll get a chance to see that. Jewelry World is like, they speak a whole different language. They have their own CAD cam, like, programs like ArtCam and like Rhino and just a whole bunch of other stuff that they use and getting to know their workflow better will be pretty interesting I think so I'm looking forward to talking more with uh, Rio Grande and those folks in that area yeah they do a lot with wax in that industry <laughs> so that'd be yeah that'd be good um I saw that tool you posted that's the first that was a new one to me the one you posted on uh, Instagram I'm a funky uh I don't know what that was an engraving tool like it is uh basically a, a tapered end mill but instead of like a, a straight flute there's a tiny bit of uh helix to it so it does pull stuff vertically away from the the stock the profile is sort of a either a triangular or a square pyramid that just helixes up it's really weird it, it looks i don't know almost ornamental but uh they say it works really well so i'm going to give that a shot in some uh some machinable wax yeah, it looked like a little miniature uh, Harry Potter wand, almost. It's inter interesting geometry. Yeah, I think uh, I'll be sticking around for the holidays, uh, taking some time off from work, catch up on on uh, stuff going on in my shop. On other work? Yeah, other work <laughs> and some family stuff. But, uh, oh, um, probably be a good time to mention, we're going to be, uh, DFX is going to take a holiday. Uh, our next episode after this one publishes will be January 8th? Yeah, yeah, January 8th. So we're going to basically skip the episode that would have been uh, out on Christmas Day. Um, but we'll be back early uh, or early in the year next year. 
and be back on our normal every two week schedule. Just wanted to mention that before I forgot. Yeah, I got to start wrapping up because it's it's almost dinner time. All right, Winston, I appreciate uh, talking to you. And it sounds like uh, you're slowly expanding in what limited space you have over there and getting stuff up and running at Carbide and at home. Sounds like we're we're both going to be super busy in the coming months. Yeah, the good news for me is uh, most of the stuff I'm doing, even the commercial stuff, I'm okay to post, at least some of the machining. So it uh, won't be like a the last two weeks has come in kind of a blackout for me on Instagram, except for a couple of posts, but uh, that's good, about to that's about to change. There'll be a lot of machining going on. That's good for me. Well, you coming back to Instagram is bad for me because I'm, <laughs> I'm still trying to play catch up. Yeah, you're doing all right. I think, yeah, when you start getting some, uh, get your shop up and running and uh, or just even the interesting stuff you were doing at, at Carbide. All right. Well, I will uh, talk to you later, Winston. I hope you have a good two weeks or is it four weeks till we talk again on DFX? Four weeks. Uh Enjoy your your holiday break. You too, Winston. Good night. Good night.